The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Hey, everybody. So I've probably met half of you. And uh, for the rest of you, I'm Scott. I'm one of the uh, pastors of Christ Prez, and I'm usually stationed over at Old Hickory. But every now and then, Stacy and then Russ Ramsey at Cool Springs and I need uh, some relief pitching uh, to replenish and refresh, uh, and so I'm here to provide that. Um, forgive me for having to scoot out right after I'm done, because I have to get back to Old Hickory to, to give this message again there, but um, it's great to be with you at all of our locations. We've been in a series uh, that we've called Encounters with Christ, and uh, we've, we've been on this one for a while. This is number 23. Uh, Number 23, so you feel like you know Christ really well by now, hopefully. Um, and uh, today we're, um, we're at one of those encounters that's more confrontational and, um, you know, there's an in-your-faceness uh, about what Jesus um, does with this group called the Scribes and the Pharisees. But before we get to them, uh, let's just talk about uh, some of Jesus' parting words at the end of his life uh, that we've famously come to understand as the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching people to obey everything that I have commanded you, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that that is a charge to convert people to Christ, baptizing, and to help people grow up in Christ, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And when you look at the book of Acts, which is sort of the the disciples' follow-through on what Jesus had charged them to do in the Great Commission, you see them boldly and and with a real sense of urgency doing exactly what he told them to do. He goes, they go out and and they're they're eager to to see uh, the tribe of Jesus grow and they, they do this thing that we call evangelism, uh, they start new churches, that they, they, they help people mature in their faith. They're persuasive, in other words. They're occupationally persuasive as missionaries and pastors and, and people who take their faith public. And, 
And yet, a recent Barner report uh, surveying people who specifically live in the Western Hemisphere are saying that now, in our time, there's an increasing number of Christians, of people who identify as followers of Jesus, who are backing off from this boldness and urgency that, uh, that was felt by the first disciples, the first Christians in the book of Acts. On the one hand, in this survey, uh, the question was asked, uh, what is the best thing that could ever happen to a person? And 97% of Christians say the best thing that could ever happen to any person is for them to know Jesus Christ. And yet, on the same survey, 50% of millennials, 25% of Gen Xers, and 20% of baby boomers say it is wrong to share your beliefs about Christ with people who have other faiths in order to convert them to Christianity. So number one, the best thing that could possibly happen to you is for you to become a Christian. Number two, the worst thing a Christian could possibly do is try to persuade people to become Christians. So what's going on here? I think that there are several factors that are contributing to this reluctance to be public with our faith. One is the flaws and sins of prominent Christian leaders. It seems like every two weeks there's another crash and burn of a public famous Christian. I wish they would just do away with the whole idea of the celebrity Christian and the celebrity pastor because it seems like so many of these stories keep happening of abuse, scandal, immorality, and so on, cover-ups. The second is the, the, the conflation uh, that people see between people's Christianity and their politics. For one generation, it was, the, was and is the, 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 largely the conflation of Christianity with red state politics. And then for younger generations, now we're seeing a dynamic where Christianity is being conflated with blue state politics. Whereas Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. And so there's a disenchantment with that, especially in a political climate like the one we're in. The inability to separate faith from politics makes people reluctant to talk about their faith. The third thing is an overall impression that Christians lack humility. Ask the average non-Christian person in the West to describe what it means to be Christian, and you'll probably get an answer like this. To be a Christian means being right, acting superior in your rightness, and hurting people in the process. So Philip Yancey, who's a, a well-known uh, Christian author, um, travels a lot, and he, he makes a habit out of striking up conversations with people while he's, you know, on layovers and in airports and so on. And uh, if, if he encounters somebody who doesn't identify as religious, he says, you know, describe for me what your impression is of a 21st century Christian. And Yancey says the, the predominant answer he gets from people who are not of faith is narrow-minded, judgmental. Always have to be right about everything. And, and here's the thing, it's good to be right. It's a really good thing to be right. Jesus was right about everything. He was always right. He was never wrong. But there's a difference between how people experience Jesus as opposed to how they experienced the Bible teachers in the first century, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they pulled out the Bible, people experienced the Bible as a weapon. They injured people with their mishandling 
of sacred scripture. They drew lines of separation. They separated the world between the good people and the bad people, while Jesus is, is even in this passage, separating the world between the proud and the humble, the selfish and the servants. But the Pharisees separated between, you know, the good and the bad, which Jesus never intended. And yet when people encounter Jesus, they don't experience the belittling that they do experience from the scribes and the Pharisees. Even children, little children, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, lepers, crooks, misfits. It seems like whenever these kinds of people encounter Jesus, they leave feeling unburdened instead of burdened. They leave feeling like a million bucks, whereas when you left the company of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you were one of them, you left feeling despised, disrespected, rejected, and lesser than. So what's, what's the dynamic here? I, I'd like to unpack the dynamic that's going on uh, under three headings here. One is uh, religious pride, which is the sin of the scribe and the Pharisees. And then there's non-religious pride, which, which, which Jesus hints at, which is the sin of the Sadducees. And then humble servanthood, which is the only true pure definition of Christianity. So religious pride. Verse 2 Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So those who sat on Moses' seat, that was an idiom for Bible teachers. And the Bible that they had at that time were the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the scribes were the interpreters of what was in those five books, and the Pharisees were the ethicists. The, the, scribe says, the scribes said, here's what it means, and the Pharisees said, Therefore, this is how we should live. And what can be wrong with that? And Jesus says the first thing wrong with their approach is the motivation. He says in verse 5 that the scribes and Pharisees do all of their deeds. Nothing mixed about their motives. They do all of their deeds, he says, in order to be seen by people. They flaunt their religion and they seek the best seats at banquets. They want to sit at table one, not at table 27. It's very important to them that they get an invitation to table one. And in the synagogue. And what they're really after, Jesus says, as he unpacks his teaching, is VIP treatment by virtue of their stellar fidelity, supposedly, to the scriptures. He says they want public recognition, they want to be called by titles like rabbis and teacher. You know, Eugene Peterson says that the scribes and Pharisees' life was a perpetual fashion show. And their, their garment was their religion, their audience was the world, and their stagehand and supporting actor was God. Now, how, do, how can you start, how can you detect the scribe? We should all, we should all believe that it's easier to detect the scribe Pharisee spirit inside ourselves than in others, and if we have that reverse, then we're already losing the battle. But here's one way. I start to enjoy the sound of my name more than I enjoy the sound of Jesus's name. I can just feel it. And I'm more zealous to 
for me to have a good name out in the world than I am for Jesus to have a good name out in the world. Okay, Enneagram 3 stuff. Um, then there's some symptoms that Jesus unpacks. You know, that's how you can tell on the inside of you. But on the outside of you, here's what comes out. You exalt yourself. And it's observable. You observably exalt yourself over God and over people. And, and, and the way that self-exaltation over God comes out is that, you know, you live a good virtuous life, you read the Bible, you go to church on a rainy day, you know, you, you, you do all the right things, and you believe all the right doctrines, and you start to think, well, God owes me something. And you get irritated when God doesn't give you the life or the career opportunities or the relationships, or the social circles and networks, or the money that you think you've earned. It was in me this morning. I wake up and I look outside and I'm like, really God? Again? More Nashville? London-like, Seattle-like gloom? Really? Like I was actually mad. And if you get mad at the weather, there's only one person behind that that you can get mad at. And then I start getting mad at you. They're not even going to show up. It's another one of those Sundays where I'm, I'm getting up at four in the morning, putting all my notes together. They're not, I was mad about you because I knew you weren't going to show up, and here you are. <laughs> it's in all of us. Chapter 19, it's more subtle in the rich ruler, where he says to Jesus, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What must I do to, to get your favor? And Jesus says, all right, you want to do it that way. Keep all the law, 100%. Oh, I've done that since I was a child. Honored my mother and father and so on. Okay, well, let's talk about idolatry, having no gods before me. Talk about coveting, rich ruler. Let's talk about those things. He says he turns around, he walks away sad, not shamed and scolded, like people tend to leave the Pharisees' presence, but sad. Because as Jesus looks at this man walking away from Jesus, Jesus looks at him and loves him. That's the difference. Jesus is ready and eager to unburden him. And what he does instead is he holds on to his burden and he carries it away with him. Mad at the way your life is turning out. Thinking that you can write a better story for your life than God can. You ever see the movie Amadeus? So, Mozart is pictured in Amadeus as a drunk, as a womanizer, as this obscene man who's also world-class. World-class composer, crushing it. And then there's Salieri, who works harder than anybody on Music Row. Just buries himself in his work and gets nowhere with it. His work is mediocre. He gets upstaged constantly by the likes of Mozart. And, and there's a point in the movie where, where he starts to bargain with God and he says, you know what, God, if, if you give me fame, I will devote all of it back to you. Just give me fame. Give me Mozart's seat in the same way that scribes and the Pharisees were given Moses' seat. Give me Mozart's seat and I'll give it all back to you. And God's answer is, nope. And then there's a then he has it out with God later on. From now on, God, we're enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me only the ability to recognize that incarnation? Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. 
I will hinder and harm your creature on earth. As far as I'm able, I will ruin your incarnation. And, and the only person he ends up hindering and harming is himself. The only person he ends up ruining is himself. You know, this entitlement approach to things, when, when your virtue doesn't pay the dividends you expect it to, you feel that God has stolen something that you are somehow entitled to from him. But it also manifests, manifests in a lack of love for neighbor. It says in verse 4 that scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders and offer no help. You know, say you've got a woman in a crisis pregnancy, and, and as any faithful Bible person would say, that which is inside of her is a life from the moment sperm and egg unite, an independent, made in the image of God, creaturely human being with all the DNA. It's all there, entitled to rights and protection and defense. So let's just assume all Bible people believe that. The scribes and Pharisees say, here's the law, now you're on your own, woman in crisis pregnancy, over 50% of which are living under the poverty line. Here's the law, you're on your own. Whereas a Christian community, an unburdening, Christ-centered community would say, this is a life. We are here to help. We are here to be a better, more life-giving solution for you as the church than the clinic. You know, the people of Jesus are, 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 are committed to creating a world in which it becomes unthinkable not only for Christian women, but for non-Christian women to think of the clinic before they think of the church. We've got some work to do. Or you've got a crisis marriage. And the scribe and the Pharisee says, here's the law. You're in it for life. You know what Jesus said about divorce. You know what Malachi says about divorce, about how God hates divorce. Here's the law. You're on your own. Now, you know, we'll, we'll engage with you if you screw up and don't keep the law. Then we'll engage. Then we'll pull out the D word, discipline. But if it's a Christian church and a Christian community, behind Jesus Christ and his agenda, it's, yeah, this is a covenant thing that, 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 that's actually meant to be a picture of Christ and the church, of, of just like Hosea and his prostitute wife, of, of of, 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 you know, sticking with her, pursuing her, chasing her, forgiving her, wooing her so that she'll want to apologize, so she'll want to be faithful. Okay? And we are here to help you with that. We are here to come around you with pastors and counselors and resources and whatever it takes to fight with you for your marriage and for your hearts. That's what a Christian church does. But the scribe and Pharisee church says, here's a law, you're on your own. We'll call you if we're upset with how you're handling it. Could add to this, could add to this the gay man who came into my office about a year and a half ago and said, you know what, I believe every word of the Bible. 
I so want to follow Jesus, but I'm, I'm in a rich ruler kind of predicament where I feel like I have to choose between disobedience and a life partner or Jesus and lifetime loneliness. What am I to do? I believe everything the Bible says, he says to me. I believe that sex is only for marriage and marriage is only for one man and one woman. Bible is unequivocal on these things, and I believe the Bible. What do I do, pastor? Scribes and the Pharisees would say, conversion therapy. Get your heart right, fast, or else we're going to treat you like a freak. And obey the law in the meantime, you're on your own. Whereas the church of Jesus Christ starts asking the question, What is it about us that makes this person think that following Jesus will increase loneliness instead of decreasing it? What is it about us and the way we do community and the way we organize our community around nuclear family? You're not a full Christian unless you're married and have children. What is it about us that forces a gay person to struggle like this, that forces a widow or, or, or a single person at age 37 who's wanted to be married for 15 years and just hasn't had the opportunity. What is it about us that makes the church a lonelier place than the world out there? And what can we do to say, look, help us become your significant other. If this is your calling, help us. Help us create an us-ness where the church is everyone's significant other. That's religious pride, but then there's non-religious pride. Jesus hints at this. It's its its own form of religion, by the way. Non-religious pride. It's its own form of evangelism and proselytization. Where teaching is biblical, Jesus says. Look, this is where this is where like the person who wants to live free and be the expressive you know individualist and and you know live my truth, follow my heart gets really upset. You, you know, you're all in when Jesus is, you know, handing it to the Pharisees and the scribes for their aggressive nature and their scolding habits, and you rightly should be on board with Jesus for that. But then he says something like, when they say something true, do whatever they say still. Reminds me of our, our uh, you know, where, where they're teaching intersects with the true scripture and the true understanding of scripture, do what they say. You know, you can't shoot the message because of the messenger, in other words. It reminds me of our our first experience with childbirth. My wife had been in labor for 36 hours, and the the doctor had the worst bedside manner of any doctor I'd ever witnessed in my life. It was just offensive, irritating. He should have paid us. He should have pulled out his credit card and given us a copay because of the, the, just the ridiculously insensitive way that he handled such a fragile situation. We had a nurse who was in the room the whole time, her name appropriately is Grace, and she said, here's how we're going to do this. We're both agreed that he's a jerk, but he's a really competent jerk. So do everything he says and lean on me for compassion. What if we became both? Imagine that. Full of grace and truth, not grace 
or truth. Full of law and love, not law or love. What would happen? The earth would shake. You know, Jesus is saying, maybe the gay man in my office or the marriage in crisis, drain the tub but keep the baby. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. You know, he says as much to the Pharisees later in verse 23. He says, you tithe, you give, you know, you give to biblical proportions, but there's no justice or mercy or faithfulness in you. And he says, you should do the latter without neglecting the former, a both-andness to it. Conservative and liberal virtue put together. Nurture private faithfulness have a public faith such that because of you, burdened people have their burdens lightened. The terms for following Jesus are these. You have to be all in. The whole Christ, the whole scripture for your whole life, and of course that's a trajectory. It doesn't happen. Snack, crapple, pop. It's a lifetime of what theologians call sanctification, of growing into the likeness of Christ of being formed by the scriptures, by the lordship of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, by the community of Christ in the local church, being formed from the outside. But Jesus, because he's a great physician, we we, we all feel sometimes, because we are divided people, that he can be a doctor who has a bad bedside manner. Because he insists that we observe whatever whatever the scriptures say. And that can be hard, because for some, like the rich ruler, it's really, really hard to have to deal with and contend with Jesus's claims on your money. And for others, like the woman caught in the act of adultery, it's very difficult to deal with Jesus's claims on your sexuality, or for others, on your time, workaholics, or, or, or on your grudges, people who've been injured, or your addictions. See, Jesus wants all of it. He wants surrender. He he, he wants and align yourself to God, not align God to yourself. Approach to life. Otherwise, we're fooling ourselves. We're we're, we're saying that, that, that he's our Lord, but really we're just treating him as a consultant or a personal assistant. We have to even be willing to accept and receive and respond to a good message from bad people. Even Paul talked about this in Philippians. Some preach Christ out of really bad motives. But I rejoice that they're preaching Christ. Hmm. It's what uh, the sociologists call expressive individualism. Robert Bella wrote this book called Habits of the Heart that unpacks this. Uh, Also, Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor, who's becoming you know, you know, kind of the darling of the Reformed community in terms of cultural engagement, but expressive individualism, the definition is this. It is the belief that an, individual is, an individual's highest loyalty should be to oneself. True happiness is obtained by expression and realization of one's core identity, which includes one's deepest desires, thoughts, and beliefs. Common slogans, be true to yourself, follow your own heart, live your truth. It's the American way. 
So the, the conservative Pharisee's error is to add to the Scriptures to be more strict than God. The, 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 the progressive Sadducee's error is to subtract from the Scriptures and be, be less concerned about flourishing through certain behaviors and life patterns than God is. And so there's a, a conservative and a liberal version of expressive individualism. The conservative expressive individualist is all about the Bible, is all about going to church, believes all the right doctrines, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, check, exclusivity of Christ, the way, truth, and the life, nobody goes to the, comes to the Father but through Him, the existence of hell and judgment, check, the reality of sin, the need for a, the atoning work of Christ, and, and, and you know, the, the, the notion that we can never be good enough to earn God's favor, that it has to be all from Christ, check, 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 but social problems, meh, not my issue. I never owned slaves. So what does systemic racism have to do with me? I have black friends. Okay. And then there's a liberal version of it. You know, the conservative expressive individualist functions this way. Love God even at the expense of neighbor. The progressive version of this is love neighbor even at the expense of God. Oh, we're activists. We're all about solving social problems and starting hashtag movements and being angry. See, did you catch that? Being angry. Fundamentalism is on the right and the left. Fundamentalism is simply this. Confident that you're right, and looking down on others with contempt who don't agree with you. It's an equal opportunity wickedness. Moses' seat is where all truth comes. And so if you're an activist, good for you, but you can't just, you can't just do whatever you want to do with your body. You can't. And what about your activism toward the unborn? You know, you, you really want to be a champion for women. How about half of the people in the womb who are girls? Start there. And the doctrines, you've got to embrace them. And you've got to convert people. You've got to be willing to offend. Duh! You know, the, 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 the liberal version of the, the expressive individualist says it is never right to make moral judgments. It is never right to tell somebody what they should believe. It's never right to try to convert somebody, not realizing that that is an attempt to convert somebody to a doctrine. It is wrong to try to convert people is a doctrine that you're trying to convert people to. It's self-defeating from the start. It's a moral judgment. It is evangelism. It is proselytization. See, none of us gets out of this alive unless we fall into the arms that Jesus has provided for us. Humble servanthood. He went first. And then he says, follow in my footsteps. Humble servant. Humble enough to receive whatever the scripture says, even if it's painful. And to start working with all your heart and surrounding yourself with people who will help you work with all your heart to grow toward the likeness of Christ for the rest of your life. You know, two steps forward, one step back every day. 
Okay, so, so there's that. Humble enough to receive fully from Christ and grateful enough to pour your life out to God and to others and to endeavor to do that fully, to simultaneously flex the muscles of conviction and compassion, to love God and neighbor simultaneously, to stop chasing titles like rabbi, father, and teacher, Jesus says, because you already have all of these things in one person, Jesus Christ. You've already got all of these things in him. If you desire greatness, get low. The greatest among you will be your servant. And here's the last thing I'll say. Why should we do this? Why? And I'm going to give you an answer you don't expect. Because of the woes of Christ. For the rest of Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're hypocrites. Woe to you, because you are whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, because... blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it's very direct. The one thing that he does that we don't pick up on, you know, it gets lost in translation as he repeats, scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, and whenever that happens in scripture, the repetition of a name or of a title, there's an affection behind it. There's a compassion behind it. The word woe, even the way that it's used in scripture, The word woe is born from compassion and and from grief, not resentment. You know, Isaiah says, woe is me. And Jesus says, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, you're, you're reading something into the text. Well, no, I'm not. Jesus's final paragraph in Matthew 23 is this. You know, in the same way that David said to his straying son, Absalom, Absalom, I've longed for you. Or, or Jesus said to Martha, Martha, Martha. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I have longed to put you in your place. No, he says, how I have longed to gather you under my protective wings like a mother hen with her chicks. How I have longed to nurture you. How I have longed to lighten your burden. But you weren't willing there's a grief there. How do we resolve that? So, so there's this book called Switch that came out. It's by Chip and Dan Heath, and, and one of the stories in there is about Tom Watson, who was the president of a large company called IBM in the 1950s and 1960s, and one of, one of the IBM executives made a bad business decision that lost $10 million for IBM, and immediately this executive came into Watson's office and offered his resignation, and he says, I'm just going to give you this before you fire me. And Watson said, fire you? What are you talking about? I just invested $10 million in you. (laughs) I can't afford to fire you. Get to work. You know, John Ortberg, um, pastor out in the Silicon Valley area, uh, says, isn't this what Jesus did with Peter? Peter is resigned having crashed and burned, having betrayed Jesus, he's despondent, resigned. He's going to fire me if he ever shows up again, right? Tail between his legs, walk of shame, the whole bit. What does Jesus do? Goes out of his way to send message ahead to, to, to Peter after the resurrection. Go tell the others and Peter that I'm coming to them. And then when he shows up, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I've got a job for you to do. Feed my sheep. 
feed my sheep. Whole Christ, whole scripture, your whole life. We'll work it out together. One step forward, two steps back, we'll work it out. Two steps forward, one step back, we'll work it out. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm not in the firing business. I'm in the resurrection and restoration business. Now, what should be our response to that? If, if it's not, sir, we love and respect you so much. $10 million and you're putting me back to work and you're not going to fire me? I love and respect you so much. I can't wait to get to work for you. If that's not our response to Jesus, what's the alternative? Food for thought. Let's pray.